Hello, and welcome to the Middle East Forum Speaker Webinar Series and Podcast. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We're pleased to have Dr. Zudi Jasser, the president and founder of the American Islamic Forum for Democracy and co-founder of the Muslim Reform Movement, join us to discuss Islamist First Muslim Reformist, how the battle has evolved since 9-11. Dr. Jasser will speak for 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And with that, I'll turn the discussion over to Dr. Zudi Jasser. Thank you. It's uh, great to be with all of you, and it's always an honor to work with the Middle East Forum and uh, be a partner with uh, all of you in the work that we do. I also want to wish my uh, Jewish brothers and sisters a blessed new year and a coming uh, Yom Kippur. So uh, uh, God bless you all in your holiday. Um, so, you know, this topic is obviously near and dear to my heart. It's been the uh, focus uh, of our work about, you know, what are the painful lessons for us reformers who have been pushing uphill against political Islam and the Islamists within the House of Islam. And as we would say in Europe, in Arabic, it's uh, yalla, where's, where's the results? And uh, I'm going to take a few minutes to go through what are the current trends since 9-11 and how does that inform our future strategies? I think, as all of you know, 9-11 exposed via Al-Qaeda and uh, subsequently then decade later uh, through ISIS, uh, the true agenda of the Islamists, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood types, the civilizational jihadists were quite upset with the militant arms of their movements because it exposed what their mission was, which was to uh, destroy the influence of the West and get them out of their hemisphere, let alone out of their influence. And uh, um, we have now seen the Arab awakening and its impact, and I think we're able to make some conclusions about the battle within the House of Islam, not only within Muslim-majority countries, but also where the West is and, and what progress or lack of progress we've made. Uh, first, I think, to be fair, um, there were many prescient leaders, uh, starting with Bernard Lewis uh, with his uh, book, What Went Wrong, and so many other, uh, uh, so much other of his scholarship, and also with Dr. Pipes and, and your organization's focus on political Islam and Islamism, and that uh, obviously a reformed, moderate Islam couched in modernity is part of the solution, uh, but obviously political Islam and the Islamic State concept is the problem. But while you all have the diagnosis correct, the treatment has been in our court and within the House of Islam, and, and why haven't we gotten further? I think successes-wise, uh, I I'm very proud of the fact that uh, those of us in the anti-jihad movement from the Muslim and non-Muslim perspective have been able to shift the, the discourse to being about political Islam. Islamism is no longer a, a dirty word. It's no longer a word that's avoided. Political Islam is, is seen as uh, incompatible with Western ideas. And I think uh, that has been a, a resounding success as far as education of the West and shifting uh, where we are. Let me go through a few assumptions we've made uh, back early on. Our organization now is going on its 15th year uh, in formality, uh, but uh, you know the first three or four years were informing what we were doing, and then in 2010 on, we hit the ground running. And why haven't we made success? I think, let me go through some assumptions. First of all, our assumption was that if you build it, they will come. And uh, the build it part is about institutions, uh, academia, um, a religious identity outside the mosque, 
uh, about a movement, about a voice in media. That's the it part. And uh, we did build it. We do have uh, leaders within our Muslim reform movement, but the the joining part has not happened. And I, I think bottom line, that's wrong. And uh, I will tell you why we were wrong about that assumption in a bit. Um, the second assumption was that Muslims will feel an ownership of Islam and want to marginalize the Islamists. I think that's been proven to be right in that the demonstrations, especially in the Arab Awakening and elsewhere, have rejected Islamism initially, but the Islamists proved to be more organized. So again, I think we were right on that assumption, but wrong on the motivation, especially for Muslims in the West to marginalize Islamists. So uh, again, um, the sense of ownership is there, but the fire under their feet, the sense of urgency has, has also been miscalculated on our part. The assumptions that uh, the West uh, would form natural coalitions with uh, non-Islamists, with those who believe in liberty, who believe in modernity, uh, that assumption was not only wrong, but we miscalculated the force of the headwinds for identity politics, for uh, that merger between the red-green axis in which we see now uh, what's left of the Islamist movement that is uh, uh, still functional and, and uh, moving full force ahead is really working in tandem. Uh, so we did not see that, neither did most of the political movements in the West see what happened with uh, the far left and its progressivist success, uh, whether it be through Black Lives Matter, the critical race theory movements, and, and the destruction of what are the foundations of Western civilization and how Islamists would be working with that. So last, we had assumed that Islamist failures would translate into our own successes. Uh, so uh, that ultimately, I think, is the, the greatest hope we have is that I can point out and I will point out the failures of Islamists and how they are beginning to turn their, uh, turn their uh, sights internally rather than externally. And that's why they're less in conflict with us in the non-Islamist or anti-Islamist world because they're too busy fighting within each other. Uh, but at the end of the day, the, the process in which there'd be a replacement while there's a supply of uh, anti-Islamists, the demand for them, it has really driven Muslims away from Islam. It has driven Muslims away from organized Islam and some even to leave the faith, which has, uh, I think, uh, in some ways is a point of success in that when the urgency will come, when Muslims realize that their faith is at stake and people are leaving the faith that they love, but that's much more methodical than we thought. It's not happening by turning on a dime and they're not turning around and, and having a populist movement against the Islamists. So let's talk about the successes that I think you should all be aware of, having looked at those assumptions and, and that have been proven wrong. So the successes, obviously, normalization of the use of the term Islamism, uh, the losses of the Islamists, uh, as I mentioned briefly in the Arab Awakening, whether it's the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt and, and how quickly their control turned into a mass movement against them. Uh, the ISIS's and uh, uh, radical uh, movements in Syria and Iraq have also proven to estrange uh, the masses in general. Um, and obviously in Iran, which we see just in the past few weeks now with the uh, Green Revolution that had started in 2009, and now we're starting to see the first time that, uh, and across the Middle East, that you have men standing with women uh, uh, protesting the hijab and control of their bodily and physical autonomy. And also in Turkey, Turkey initially had a huge uh, uptick in Islamist uh, favor globally uh, when they took in millions of Syrian refugees and, and uh, weighed in against Assad. But now Erdogan 
uh, has uh, basically uh, taken on a, a caliph mentality and an Ottoman type mentality. The Syrians living in Turkey are realizing from what I'm what we're hearing on the ground that uh, they are now being rejected by uh, the Turkish government and our third, fourth class citizens. And it's actually, as far as populist movements go, is, is beginning to be a rejection of the AKP from whether it's Syrian immigrants or others. So uh, uh, I think that also is turning into the Islamists, again, over and over across the planet, are proving to be their own worst enemies when it comes to the movements they claim to be all about. Internally here in the West, if you look at pure numbers, 10 years ago, there was a study that uh, um, I think it was a um, Gallup poll along with Abu Dhabi or one of the Emirates that looked at how many percent of American Muslims adhere to ISNA, CARE, MPAC, these Islamist uh, Muslim Brotherhood legacy groups. And at the time, we thought it was low because it was 12%. And that was a time when ISNA was able to have conventions of 40, 50,000. And uh, um, they were doing that up until pre-pandemic. Now, some of this they blame on the pandemic, but uh, clearly there has been a hemorrhaging of membership from the Islamic Society of North America and the Council on American-Islamic Relations. I attribute it, and I think it's fair to attribute it to the disgrace of many of their leading uh, Islamists, uh, whether it's Tariq Ramadan, who was a, uh, has been criticized as a serial rapist and was uh, in prison for quite a time in, in France uh, uh, three, four years ago. Hassan Chibli, Florida's care leader, also uh, um, criticized severely for uh, sexual harassment and other issues. Numan Ali Khan, and the list goes on. There's even an organization of uh, Muslim women attorneys called Facing Abuse in Community Environments that now has grown with hundreds of affidavits against imams and others about their sexual abuse of uh, women that are vulnerable in mosques and elsewhere. Uh, the New York Times just had a piece a few weeks ago about sham Muslim marriages, and we're starting to see a, a, a uptick in cultural attention to some of the misogyny and other issues that are happening within the Islamist community. And so as a result, the general population of Muslims, ISNA's meeting, I think, has dropped by 80% in their last uh, um, uh, attendance numbers, and they're claiming they're doing a different format. Uh, same thing with CARE. So I think some of their populist uh, ability to get uh, adherence has fallen off. That has not, however, shifted into folks adhering to our reform movement. It has basically estranged American Muslims and Western Muslims from any type of organized Muslim activity. I think that is a low-hanging fruit that will ultimately become our constituency. But I will tell you that part of the problem is those Muslim groups are a bit those Muslim individuals are a bit too comfortable in the West, and they've not really been, uh, um, I think, uh, had the microscope about their ideology, et cetera. So there's been no urgency for them. Uh, they uh, have basically, there's also some gaps that include gaps in education. Uh, for them to debate some of the clerics is, is actually a task that many in our population are not up to the task to do. Uh, they don't see imams as relevant to them uh, because they're not controlling society, they're a minority. Um, but there have been an increase in cases. For example, there was just now a Texas Supreme Court case that we provided an amicus brief to that just uh, a few days ago uh, came back in favor of the, um, uh, the, the spouse that was trying to seek divorce who she was being forced into an Islamist tribunal. And initially, the lower court insisted that she had to be forced into this coerced document that she claimed she didn't even understand what she was signing. 
And after a couple times at the appellate system, the Supreme Court in Texas ruled in her favor that she can have her her rights heard and that it would be adhered to the American system and not according to the tribunal through a separate non-American Quranic Sharia-based system. So there are a number of these cases around the country that are having an impact on the ground as far as uh, what Muslims perceive as being the type of system they would like to see and thus marginalizing the ability for Islamists to have leadership. But I do think all of the corruption that you see that in the, whether it's uh, uh, misogynistic corruption or corruption in their finances uh, or otherwise, character is destiny. So the Islamist movement, I think, is is beginning to fall apart. Uh, globally, we see the Arab monarchs or Petro-Islam is also done with Islamism. Uh, we saw just a few days ago, Arab News uh, uh, highlighted Qardawi and his death. Qardawi, by the way, Yusuf Qardawi was basically the uh, uh, main central Islamic leader in the Sunni community, the Islamist Sunni community, that is, not the Salafi one, as far as the spiritual guide of the Muslim Brotherhood, and he passed at 96 years old. You can tell now by who provided eulogies to him as to who the diehard Muslim Islamists are in the West, but the Arab News said that he was a hate, a preacher of hate. I don't know if they would have said things similar 10, 15 years ago, uh, there's always been an antagonism between the royal families and the Islamist movements, except in Qatar. Uh, but I, I do think that ultimately, and just so you understand, it's not that Wahhabi Islam has gone through a major reformation, but there's an old saying in the Middle East that the, the Salafis use politics, for, um, use politics for religious control, but the Islamists use religion for political control. So the Islamists are a political movement that just cloaks itself in religion, but the Salafis, the royal families, et cetera, will often in a corporate way use uh, the political control they have in government and the military to exert a, a specific flavor of that religion that is pretty black and white and, and, and uh, Wahhabi in nature. So these internecine battles I think are important uh, to highlight and are, are providing a large opening for us that I think is part of the strategy that we need to look at Many millennials are, are drifting away from Islam, from religion. Uh, I, I think uh, uh, Dr. Pipes had a, a, a good piece about the fact that conversions and departures from Islam are increasing. Uh, again, as a Muslim who loves my faith, uh, I, I can't feel that that's a good thing in, in long term, but in short term it is. I, I think that's how Muslims will feel an urgency to correct the corruption and the control of the political Islamists. Uh, I think ultimately the linkage globally of Palestinianism to Islamism uh, is begin or to Islam is beginning to fall apart, and that thanks to the Abraham Accords. I just wrote a piece in the White Rose uh, magazine. I'd ask you to look at on Palestinianism, and how the linkage to political Islam and Hamas and how it effectuated that globally has been the main uh, propaganda method that they used there, and that has now been begun to fall apart uh, because of the disconnect of Bahrain, uh, hopefully the Saudis soon, but at least the Emirates, uh, and uh, uh, hopefully more countries that will begin to de-link Palestinianism from the global Muslim ummah or the community. In Europe, I think we've seen some successes with uh, Sebastian Kurtz uh, in Austria, who finally declared uh, as a Western leader that uh, political Islam is incompatible. And actually, I think he went a bit too far in that if you're going to defeat political Islam, you do that with good ideas, better ideas, but not by outlawing it. But he did 
pass some, uh, ask the parliament to pass some laws against any preaching of political Islam. So again, the diagnosis is right, but the treatment has been off. Macron has been on target as far as uh, what the French government uh, has been doing in targeting political Islam. And we see in Italy, uh, Georgia Maloney has uh, also uh, will soon be ascending to uh, prime minister and uh, her position on the threat of Islamists, uh, I think uh, uh, will also be something for the West to learn from. Um, I think if you look as far as uh, uh, in the last few minutes, what I wanna talk about is what are some openings? I think the left has a template that somehow I would like to see happen with the rest of us in the West, which is if you look at what Black Lives Matter, CRT, cr critical race theory, a lot of the identity movements in the left they are the last vestige that the Islamists still have significant power with in the West. And that power has uh, basically uh, used the Islamists to fill some, to check some boxes for political Islam and the, and the uh, West minority type movements. Uh, but ultimately it's given them a voice, it's given them a platform. I think in the right or, or center of America, uh, as we look at rather than the red green axis of the left and the Islamists, a red, white, and blue axis. Uh, that red, white, and blue axis, uh, if you saw Ilhan Omar, for example, wanted to set up a seat to uh, of an office to monitor and combat Islamophobia, which would, would have basically been a bla anti-blasphemy seat in the State Department. Uh, thankfully, that has not made it through the Senate. I've written about that extensively, uh, but I do think it serves to show that if we can create some positions in academia, chairs of, of different uh, schools, uh, um, in government uh, to fight political Islam and to create a sense, uh, a doctrine, if you will, that uh, uh, ultimately political Islam is the enemy, but liberal modern Islam is our friend, that I think uh, just as the left template has proven to be very harmful to uh, any reform work, I think on the right, a red, white, and blue axis defending America, defending Israel. We just had a conference uh, uh, with the Ruet organization uh, that is looking at building a coalition of those who endorse the Abraham Accords. I think within that, we found a lot of Muslims that uh, uh, recognize Israel, and clearly that has always been for us a litmus test, the recognition of Israel and belief in the, in, in the friendship that America and the West has with Israel as being a litmus test of who the Islamists are and who the Islamists are not um, as being key to that. So ultimately, coalitions against uh, um, uh, identity politics in the West, coalitions against anti-Semitism should evolve in the center and the center right in America, coalitions for America's foundations. And I think there needs to be, as those coalitions evolve in the political movements of the West, begin to make an effort to identify Muslims to be part of that. The problem with Muslims on the center and the right in America is that we are not organized. We are not centrally organized the way the Islamists are of the Rashida Tlaibs and the Ilhan Omars that have a farm team. So now we need a farm team and our farm team is part of our new project, which is the uh, about the future Muslim leaders of America. And I'll tell you, if you look as, as many thousands of Islamists are part of CARE and ISNA and MPAC, at the most, you could probably come up with 30, 40 names. And I think similarly, if we can come up with 30, 40 reformists, it doesn't matter that we don't have right now the groundswell of movements that can fill up halls. The bottom line is, is once we have all these spokespeople with platforms in academia, government, and, and interfaith work, then I think that can begin to change the needle and begin to fill that gap, some of those gaps that I had talked about.
So with that, I'll be happy to take your uh, questions. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us. The first question is from Larry Greenberg. Uh, what is your estimate of the non-Islamist leanings of American Muslims? Thank you for that question. So as far as uh, the numbers go, um, I will tell you, and I, I believe this is informed by fact uh, regarding if you look at statistics in the Middle East, uh, initially, the Islamists got uh, at max 35 to 40 percent. Salafists uh, were probably 15 percent of that. Uh, so that leaves 50 to 60 percent either non-Islamists or some type of uh, um, other type of political movements. And I think in the West, it's probably a little higher than that, obviously. Uh, while many Islamists came to the West to try to evangelize their movement, uh, many non-Islamists came to escape for freedom. So ultimately, uh, what I've seen is if you're talking numbers within mosques, uh, we are a minor minority. But again, like I said, most of the non-Islamists are beginning to actually repel from organized Islam. So if you did statistics of the five, six million Muslims in America, I think that you'll find uh, probably three quarters of them reject political Islam. And that's a study that really should be done and not be done by the, the pupil type people that where they're just too uh, um, politically correct. I think we need some of us really heaped in this to form questions and, and actually finance a poll to get the numbers so that it can no longer just be guesswork. Absolutely. And you spoke about... Um... A religious identity outside the mosque and and how many or some muslims are leaving the faith uh do you feel that uh muslims feel marginalized either the radical extremism or leave the faith yeah so it's interesting i i think they're leaving definitely the organized faith much more than they were i will tell you even those who uh, uh don't go to mosque and may not pray or, or fast in, in our holy months they still are holding on tightly to that Muslim identity. They want their children and their grandchildren to identify as Muslims. But what does that mean? Muslim is not a race, it's, it's an ideology. So we have to begin to educate them that it can't just be a historical tradition based on genetic transmission of, of a faith. It has to, it's an idea. And they have to embrace what that ideology means. Uh, but right now, uh, I think they're, they've been too comfortable because the media is so hell-bent on identity politics. It's amazing. Uh, you, you know, I wrote a piece called uh, Me Too Except for Muslims, um, meaning that every other faith community has been all over women's rights and, and exposing uh, sexual harassment and other things. And yet when it came to Muslim imams here locally in Phoenix or elsewhere, we had affidavits, lawyers that had done significant work, and I couldn't get publication of pieces that expose that because they were worried about lawsuits and and racism and other things it's just amazing how muslims are 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 given a different standard of standards for evaluation than every other community so as a result that bigotry of low expectations creates a, a sense of defeatism and a lack of engagement within our community because they, they do feel marginalized and not treated the way other faith communities are. And the case I helped in in Texas, I provided expert witness uh, testimony for her case. Uh, I can tell you the judge initially, the lower court judge uh, just dismissed me, uh, was more respectful to the imam on the other side than she was to me during the uh, questioning. Uh, but then the Supreme Court ultimately ruled in our favor versus uh, the imam's favor. 
That's interesting that you mentioned the the court case. We've actually had another speaker mention that uh, uh, the reverence for the religion over individual security. Has that been happening more often, do you think? Yeah, and here's the quandary. The quandaries, you know, I'm a conservative. I, I believe our federal government should stay as much out of uh, religious issues as the as possible. It's a very personal decision. And if faith communities, whether Christian, Jewish, or otherwise, want to have their own arbitration system, that's fine. But when a religious document says that explicitly they reject the, the laws of the land, they reject the Constitution, and the Quran will take precedence, that's the role for protection of rights. That's why our constitution exists. So unfortunately, the Muslim consciousness in America is still where the separation of church and state discussion was when our founding fathers had the discussion of the establishment clause versus where the political spectrum in America is in the 21st century about discussion of church and state, whether it's on pro-life issues and other things. That's a 21st century conversation with progressivists versus conservatives. And we mix and end up using Muslims for a political discourse in America rather than really understanding where our community is. So, uh, And I've had the same issue on school choice. The Islamic schools in America, as you saw with Tiza and that was shut down in Minneapolis and other schools, uh, are often separatist and anti-American and, and might as well be, uh, uh, you know, I see them as supremacist schools akin to having a Nazi school in America, and yet they're they're given deference for religious freedom because nobody wants to harm the school choice movement. So we need to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time, which is protect school choice, but yet be critical of Islamic schools that are separatist in their ideology. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that. Uh, JL asks, is there any effort to get the news media to start seeking input from moderate Muslims versus the cares of the world? I think they're going to be dragged kicking and screaming, as we saw anytime the media uh, groupthink, especially on the left, uh, is called out. But we don't need them. I, I think many of our reformists have large platforms. Uh, we could get to alternative media through podcasts. Uh, you know, imagine if uh, uh, Joe Rogan, uh, Barry Weiss, uh, uh, so many others now that have their own platforms would begin to uh, highlight our work regularly in the reform movement. Uh, it would make traditional media completely irrelevant as they have in their own platforms. So I think there's other opportunities. The problem is, is they see the Islamic issue as not necessarily high priority. I would say if you have other issues, whatever the top five priorities are against the identity politics, CRT, BLM left, put Muslims into that. We have people that are advocating for support of our military, support of our, of our constitution and our uh, um, rights and, and other things that are a debate in the, in the core political discourse in America. Just make sure there's Muslims that, are, that can become icons that are seen in American culture as part of that debate. No different than the Tlaibs and, and the, uh, you know, the squad included Muslims. Uh, I don't think they did it because they cared about jihad one way or the other. It was because uh, they included them as part of the diversity mix. And the follow-up to that, obviously, you're one of the leaders of the, the reform movement here that you're speaking about. Uh, but who who else has has a voice like yours? So our reform movement includes uh, uh, many leaders in, in Europe, Canada, and the U.S. Uh, many of you may, for example, know Ezra Nomani. Uh, she, I think, as an example of what I was just saying, and that she was very active in the uh, school uh, uh, parent 
uh, rights issues uh, over the past few years, and, and yet she maintained significant work with us in the reform movement. Raheel Raza in Toronto uh, has been very engaged in uh, her work with uh, uh, Muslims uh, for, for a Better Tomorrow. Uh, Soraya Dean has been very active uh, from the uh, Sri Lanka uh, community and uh, on uh, women's rights uh, in uh, in Europe. We've been working closely with Imam Osama Hassan, uh, and uh, um, he's been uh, actually very much engaged in some of the theological discourse uh, with our Muslim reform movement. And uh, so if you go to muslimreformmovement.org, you'll see a list of many of them. Uh, that are on there. I'd also call your attention to a new coalition we're broadening beyond the Muslim community, which is called Clarity Coalition, which is champions for liberty um, against uh, um, the reality of Islamist terror. Um, and that Islamism, uh, that anti-Islamist coalition, we're broadening to include so many like the Middle East Forum and others in the anti-jihad movement so that we can begin to develop those coalitions I was talking about in my opening remarks. Yes, and in your opening remarks, you also stated that the, the ball is in the court of the reformists, uh, but Ed Blum asks, what, can, what do you suggest a non-Muslim can or should do? So um, I would ask that when you see things that are at the top of the agenda, uh, for example, free speech. Right now, there's a lot of discussion on what speech limitations should exist on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube and what should be canceled or not canceled and, and cancel culture. Include Muslims in that conversation. I can't tell you the number of times that I've seen major media talk about cancel culture, and there's nothing about what we are experiencing. You saw the, the assassination attempt of Salman Rushdie a few weeks, a few months ago. And there was hardly, I mean, there was some coverage, but compared to what would have been covered five, six years ago, I think it was still minimal. And yet it, that, that attack on a, a hero like Salman Rushdie brought to confluence issues regarding Iran, Hezbollah, um, free speech, cancel culture, all these things that are part of the media that should have been, we could have had seven, eight of us speaking about this, and, and none of us really got too much calls despite our press releases, et cetera. Second, in politics, I think talk to your members of Congress uh, about uh, engaging these issues, having hearings about them, and, and keeping it on the agenda of Congress, especially when it comes to foreign policy formulation. Uh, keeping the ball moving on the Abraham Accords, I think, is really important that I think move the ball forward significantly. Lastly, in academia, uh, insist that your local universities have us on panels. Actually, we don't want to displace the Islamists. I'd love to debate them because whenever we do, they lose a lot more following and we gain more. So make sure we have presence in universities and actually also possibly begin to get, just like MESA, the Middle East Association of America, which is a, a horrifically uh, Islamist and Arabist uh, institution, we need to form similar types of networks within the university academia structure of anti-Islamist and reformists. Thank you. And we have quite a few questions. Unfortunately, we do not have time for. Uh, but before we go, can you tell our viewers where we can find some more of your work? So find me at our website with the American Islamic Forum for Democracy at aifdemocracy.org. And uh, find me at twi on Twitter is the easiest way at Dr. Zudi Jasser, D-R-Z-U-H-D-I-J-A-S-S-E-R, -S -S -E and also muslimreformmovement.org. Thank you. All right, thank you so much. We've come to the close of our webinar. Thank you again, Dr. Jasser, for joining us today. Thank you. Appreciate it.
for our viewers, please be on the lookout for our weekly webinar offerings email coming out over the weekend. Thank you all for joining us and I hope you have a wonderful day.